Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are on the second chapter of Shmot, hanging out in verse 6. It's been two weeks because we didn't study last week. Um, I know you're all going through withdrawal, as am I. Let me read the verse again, not to totally re-legislate what we discussed, but just to bring because some of what we raised as interesting or problematic in the verse Rashi deals with, and some he does not. Okay, so verse 6 in the second chapter of Shmot. Vatiftach, she opened, right? We we know what she opened, but the verse doesn't tell us what she opened. She opened the teva, the little... Um, Container that the little baby boy was in. Vatir Ehu, and she saw him, Etayeled, the boy. And I specifically translated that way to set up Rashi, that there seems to be both an implied grammatical direct object and then the actual direct object. It doesn't say Vatir E Etayeled. It says Vatir Ehu Etayeled. And the Hu ending is the direct object, which is usually present when you don't actually have a direct object following. But here the direct object is there. So she opened and she saw it, the boy. And behold, a lad, and I'm just I'm translating that intentionally, a young lad is crying. Interestingly, that boche is a present tense verb here, even though tense does mean something a little bit different in the Bible than it does in modern English. Still, it's interesting. She had mercy upon it or upon him. And she said, this is from among the birthings of the, uh, or the, or the children of the Hebrews. Okay. So that was the verse itself. And we spend a lot of time asking potential uh, questions on that verse. Um, and some of them are going to be addressed by Rashi. Before we jump to the Rashi, um, are there, are there any burning or lingering questions or comments that people want to ask about the verse, something that got reawakened as I read, as I read the verse? Going once. Okay. Um, yes, Vered. So there is, she saw the boy, and then we can talk about it. But then it says, nar So Nar is 10, 12 years old. So there is the Yelet, there's the baby, and there is the Nar. So it just doesn't go meaning of the word. I think we talked about it last time. So he's crying. You can say crying a lot, crying like a young boy, not as a baby. So there is this question there, where is the yellow and where is the na'ar? Right. How, how, how old is this being that she is looking into? According to our calculations... The boy's about three months and, and, and not, and, but three months, but finally finishing the third trimester, right? Remember the Midrash that suggested that he's put the third trimester outside the womb. And so Rashi is going to play with that. Um, I want to read to you um, the way Everett Fox deals with the present tense of the word boche, because it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't read in such a way to suggest that it's yet another one of the action items. She opened, she saw, he cried. Had it been that, it would have been, and the boy cried. So the way he renders it is beautiful. She opened it and saw him, comma, the child, dash, here, comma, a boy weeping, exclamation point. 
that the that the hinei na'ar bocheh is almost like her her experience of it in her real present tense. We're getting into her mindset. What is this? It is a it is a boy weeping, as opposed to the narrator telling it it happened. It is her emotional experience of it in in the real time present tense. So I think it's a lovely way of handling the change in tenses there. Barry. You just muted yourself, Barry. You had been unmuted, but you just muted yourself. There. Okay. So we, we go back to his birthing. Um, his mom, Vatacharish of Vatelet Ben Vatera Oto, he told who? The who. It's, there was an redundant who there. And we discussed then that the who regarded the, the special light that was emanating. And uh, so uh, there's a parallel here where um, Pharaoh's daughter looks, it's a boy, and there's an redundant who, and the who that she sees is the special light. Uh, nice. There is, there, is, there is that doubling of the who. The, the special light emanates from the, from the, from the tov and connecting back to a, a Genesis image of Bayar Adonai Ki Tov, that God saw the light and it was good. But yes, there is a, there's a, there's a, an alliterative parallel to this extra, extra who that's in the verse. Horton hears a who, and um, the daughter of Pharaoh heard a who also. Um, Alan Brody, was your hand up? I saw you unmuted. Was that because your hand was up? Where are you? I don't see you. Oh, I can't tell where he is. Okay. Um, he would unmute and say something if you were here. I see his name, but I don't see his picture. That's weird. Oh, there you are. Alan, are you trying to say something? No, you're not trying to say something. Okay. So let's read... Um, uh, the Rashi on verse six and um, Elon, you want to give it a shot? Okay. Vetiftach uh, She opened it and she saw him. Et mi ra'ata etayad. Who who did she see? The boy. Zehu pishutu. This is a simple meeting. Okay, we'll pause meet there. So, so, so Rashi's going to end up saying two things on this one, on this one uh, phrase, and he's already said the first one. So the first point he's made is what? It's, uh, she opened it and she saw the boy. It's, it is what it says. Exactly. The first thing Rashi says is don't, don't get yourself all worked up about the fact that there's a redundant direct object. Sometimes it happens that you have the direct object built into the verb, and then you also have the direct object. Read it this way. She opened, she saw it, and then he inter, interjects. Whom did she see? It's not a big deal. That's the shot. However, keep going. Umidrash, uh, umidrash, uh, but uh, but the midrash shara'ata imo shechina that that uh, she saw with him uh, the shechina. Right, it's a really interesting, um, fanciful midrash. One of the things that's that's bothersome to me about this as a midrash, as a as a grammarian, is that the the um, the gender doesn't work because shechina is feminine. Right, so if it was vatiftach vatireha et hayeled, he she opened and she saw a feminine it along with the boy. 
it's a it's a easier um it's it's an easier midrash right or maybe you know the the way of saying it that that what 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 she saw with with Moshe or the the baby's about to be named Moshe was not specifically the feminine Shekhinah, but the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One. And remember, one of the things that makes this Midrash works is that the biblical et, the biblical et means both direct object and with. Et ha-Elohim hitalech Noach. Noach walked himself with God, right? So um, it wouldn't be as apparent to us, it's like I'm just letting people in, we're still on the waiting room, that the et should be understood as a with, but biblically, absolutely. And then it's no longer redundant. She opened, she saw him with the boy. Whom did she see? According to the Midrash, the Shekhinah, even though the Shekhinah is feminine. So that's what he says. Let me ask for your comments or, or, or questions on what Rashi says. Uh, your, your thoughts about that as Midrash, what, she's, what he's trying to pull out of this. See Barry's hand? The, the the who is masculine. The light is masculine. So although it's referencing Shekinah, but specifically it's it's the light of uh, 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 referenced as who, which is masculine. Well, right, but that 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 to me is the is the very problem in reading it as Shirata Imo Shekinah, because the Shekinah is is understood to be the thing that she saw with the boy. Um, we can forgive, we can forgive Rashi that we can forgive the Midrash that, um, but it's, 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 it's an odd, it's an odd resolution because it would have been possible for someone writing that Midrash to make the thing that she saw a masculine thing. Right. There are plenty of masculine ways of saying that they saw God, but perhaps, but, but they wanted it to be that she saw the Shekhinah. Um, Rick, DJ Rick. Um, you know, I like the angels, so she saw Gabriel. That's that's in the Midrash, too. But again, I don't think Gabriel hit Moses. He just woke him up really hard. Um, Judy's saying she can't hear anything. She'll try again. Judy, oh. come on back whenever you can. We, we want you a part of this. I don't know why you can't hear, but you also can't even hear me saying this, so I'm speaking for my own benefit. <laughs> um, okay, yes, and hold that thought about the angel because Rashi's next comment um, also references, even though it doesn't make it explicit, this notion of an interaction, not, not just that there is an angel present, but interaction between the angel and the baby. But let's ask a question on the Midrash, right? Like, particularly because it's so fanciful, it, there's, there's got to be a point to it. What, what is the point? What is the rhetorical or Midrashic or sermonic point, aside from resolving a grammatical oddity, to suggest that when Pharaoh's daughter opened up the Teva, she not only saw the baby, but that she beheld Shina. Like, what, what, why? What do we get from it? I see Norman Rachel's hand up. I was actually, um, yeah, yeah. Oh. I was actually raising it because the who in many of our translations is it. So, seeing that it's the boy, um, the Yeled, it explains what she saw because there is no neuter in no neutral in Hebrew. Um, it doesn't have a way of saying it that isn't masculine or, or feminine somehow. So that makes that double direct object a little bit easier to understand as in a positive. But um, it just seems unlikely that, you know, we don't, we don't normally find people just coming into contact with the Shekhin out of the clear blue sky. But I think it may simply be that she's Pharaoh's daughter and she suddenly has 
for lack of a better word, an epiphany when she sees this baby. And that is like having an encounter with the Shekhinah. Beautiful, Nora, right? So, so whether or not we think that it's a good reading of the verse, what the Midrash seems to be suggesting, at least mildly, is that the daughter of Pharaoh has nevuah, has prophecy, has exposure, right? And the question is, does that say something more about her or something more about Shekhinah, right? When Shekhinah wants to make herself discernible to someone, is that saying something about the Shekhinah's ability to penetrate human consciousness? Or does it say something about the human consciousness's ability to be aware of the divine, right? It, it, it's un- and not that I have an answer to that question, right? No one can answer that. But it's an, in- it's an interesting question to ask on the question on the question. But it's not a small thing to say that this daughter of the Pharaoh who's oppressing the Israelites opens the ark and the thing that she beholds is not just the baby crying, but the Holy One. She beholds the Holy One. Um, Tova and then Barry, is that a second? Is that a hand again? Okay, Tova and then Barry. Uh, you're muted, Tova. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, just to expand on what you were saying, in a way, we could also see it as that she revealed a capacity to see Shekhinah in other human beings, yeah. to have that level of perception, and even in a child. And then if we follow up the verse, her mind even takes her beyond that infant to the the child growing to being a not art you know so uh that also says something about her as a person and also the way in which we can indeed experience shekhina yeah wonderful i wonder if if the if one of the origin concepts of this midrash mm-hmm. is to suggest that the only way that we can imagine a woman in this situation mm-hmm. given who her father is having chemla mercy for a boy that she already identifies mm-hmm. as a Hebrew, is if somehow God is present. If she, if she, if she, only if you are open to the Shekhinah would you be willing to resist the, the, you know, the, the zeitgeist of your generation who's telling you to throw that boy into the water. It's got, it's got to be a God relationship, mm-hmm. right? Now that's, that's a little bit um, jingoistic, right? We're saying that, that it, you know, if, it's only if you're exposed to the Hebrew God that you could possibly have that chemla, but that's, that's the way the rabbis understand things. Right. Uh, Barry, Sue and Steve, your hand was up and then it's down, but I'm happy to call on you. Uh, Barry, Sue. And I see you. I see you, Alan, also. So, yeah. So Norm has already identified the, 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 the power of Shekinah is in here. So it's, it's a miraculous event. But previously, uh, we saw something of uh, the daughter's uh, character. She separated herself from her maiden. She wanted to be alone. And she cut she. She separated herself from her culture, her, 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 her be alone. This, this ability to be alone uh, makes her uh, susceptible to uh, communicate with Shekhinah. Wonderful. And particularly poignant as you imagine the scenes that are going to come later on with Pharaoh, whether, whether it's the same Pharaoh or not, it's hard to figure out the, the passage of time, who, is, who will be blind to God's uh, manifestations, right? Who will resist seeing what God wants to show. His daughter took one look, heard one cry, one cry possibly augmented by an angel. We'll talk about that in a second. And she sees, and she sees the only one. Sue, uh, Steve, Alan, Larry. 
Well, I was just thinking about what you had said before you said it. I was thinking about that same thing that it, it's she without her seeing God, the rest of the story almost doesn't happen. And I really picture it as this oh, like the angels are singing moment that she sees this complete revelation in front of her and it almost is acting as if moved by by an entirely outer being because she's being you know she's she's being kind of manipulated manipulated she's the strings are being pulled by a by a god presence that she perceives and moves and and acts accordingly wonderful right so the midrash introduces god into what what otherwise could have been kind of a random moment and and Upgrades our sense of who this of who this woman is. But before we move on, um, we should all look at Sue. Look at Sue. Everybody, look at Sue and see the smile and glow on her face because we are four days away from her eldest child standing underneath the chuppah in her backyard wearing a face mask and another mask and a, and a hazmat suit. Um, and it should have been something very very different. But Mazel Tov to you, Sue, on Sivan's wedding. It's going to be such Thank an honor you. to share it with you. Thank you. Um, okay, Steve, Alan, Larry. Uh, yeah, you know, you kind of, uh, that's exactly what you just said, Rabbi, was what I was thinking. But, you know, the thing that strikes me and, and is that that the power of, of God in that child, because when you think about it, the child is three months old when she finds him, right? So let's uh, say... So he's been circumcised. So she's about to take an, a circumcised child into the the house, an uncircumcised house. So he is going to stand out. They're going to know immediately that he is not one of them. So the power of of God coming through him to her is, you know, it has to be strong because she has to know that she's going to be bringing this child in to this house and she's going to have to sell that right. to the Pharaoh and all those people. So he must have a, an incredible power coming through him yeah. to make that believable to not just to the daughter, but then to everybody in the house. Right. And that connects back to what Barry said before, this notion of, of was she somehow exposed to some version of the same or the same light, the same thing that was told that his mother saw that saw him not worthy of being saved, but savable. Right. The circumcision thing is an interesting thing because a lot of a lot of us remember that later on the book of Shemot, Moshe will be circumcised ouch, by his wife, Zipporah, on the way back into Egypt. And it's unclear that a second circumcision. No, thank you. Or does it mean that he was never circumcised? But the, the Torah is not explicit about whether or not this baby was circumcised. Right? We can posit that, you know, that as, as descendants of Abraham, that uh, Moshe's mother did that, but it doesn't, it doesn't say explicitly that he was now. It just says explicit that he was again later. Um, but wonderful. When you were saying that comment, Steve, I was thinking of like uh, Lahavdil and exorcism, like the, pa- the, pa- the power of Christ compels you, right? The, the power of God in this moment emanating from this boy compelled her or, or mo- moved her to do, to do Chemla. And by the way, it sounds silly, but ain't it the truth? Right. It isn't exact. Isn't that exactly what we call it when some empathic, humane, loving instinct overpowers our base um, human instinct so that we're more merciful in a situation that otherwise wouldn't be? We Jews attach that to the spirit of God within us. 
right? So this notion that that she sensed and and took in a godliness in that moment, and that drove her chemla. That that's not a crazy thing for a Jew to think. I I, I feel that very much myself when chemla overpowers anger. Okay, that's that's the godly spirit within me. Uh, La- uh, Alan and then Larry. Yeah, everything that we're saying about seeing Shechina, that uh, when Pharaoh's daughter does that, supports the Midrash that I had heard previously, that Pharaoh's daughter was going down to the to the river for conversion. And she took on the name Bat-Yah, daughter of God, to be able yes. to do that. And they would be supportive of being there and then seeing God's presence, seeing Shechina, there it's just fascinating to me to 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 hear to to see it all coming together something i hadn't comprehended as a possibility as a as a fanciful midrash really has some merit based on what rashi is saying yeah i think you mean bithia isn't that her name according to cecil beta mill right uh, that's how he <laughs> bithia from bachi i can get do you guys remember what what that movie called yocheved Yoshebel, who, who was there? Not a single Hebrew man, person in that editing room that when someone said, "Let's call her Yoshebel," someone said, "That's just ridiculous." In any language, I don't know, like why? Why is Yoshebel any easier than Yocheved? Yeah. Yes, even that, though that was before they had people coming in to uh, review it, advisors to tell them what dramaturgs, to... right? Um, so correct. In, in our scene, she's not named Batya, but later on, the Bible refers to her as Batya. And, and, and this might be, um, you know, biblical text, uh, you know, well, it is biblical text informing Midrash and that that this Midrash seems to be built into this notion that this woman is properly referred to as a Batya. Larry, you've been waiting a long time. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to be the contrarian. Please you guys do. have all taken this <clears throat> weird Rashi, which is completely <laughs> contradicted by the, by the grammar, as you pointed out, <clears throat> and just run with it all the way down the field. <laughs> oh, I don't see it at all. But I see something else, which helps answer a question I had last week. <clears throat> and I may be butchering Chizkuni here, but I'll do it anyways. So I read now the verse. Better people than you have butchered Chizkuni, Larry. Well, say, what do we say? Better people than you have butchered Chizkuni. Join the club. So here's how here's how I'm reading the here's how I'm now reading this passage. comma. She opened it and she saw it because the who can be it. Mm-hmm. It was a boy. So what she's she's looking at a baby without a, without sex. Now she sees this a boy. Now I'd like to put an atnachta there, but they don't. Now I know I'm going for further than we've gone, but I'm going to go anyways. What's the nar? It's not the boy she saw in the basket. There was another boy crying. What boy was crying? A young man. It was Aaron. Aaron is also along with his sister following the basket. And he's crying because he sees his brother being picked up, maybe, by this princess. Now, Cheskuni doesn't go further. I can make up a story, just like you all made up your stories about the Shekhinah, about 
what he was thinking. But that explains the difference between that. That is a possible explanation of the difference between the Yelid, between the, the Tire Hu, the Yelid, and the Nahar. And now she has, well, the rest of the verse follows. So there's my, there's my drash on the verse. Great. I don't think you've butchered Chizkuni at all now that I look at, at Chizkuni. Uh, before I look at Chizkuni, I was going to say, you know, and, and, and the second revelation of Torah, that will be the meaning of this verse. And, and we'll, <laughs> we'll all credit you. Yeah, I mean, listen, what, what, what just happened in the last 10 minutes is wonderful, right? We don't know. We don't know. Rashi doesn't know. We can f- try to figure out what we think Rashi thought, but we don't know. And the, 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 the material is so pluripotent, particularly where you put the comma, particularly if you think about the drop as the trup, as you know, the, the, the rabbis, as we said before, call the trup halacha lemoshin misinai, right? That came from, from Sinai to Moses. But it did, but, but, but whether or not that is the case, at some point there were, there were the words before the music, which means the music is an interpretation, which means, and, and as you know, where you put the comma um, or semicolon a verse changes just about everything. So the, I, I would propose to the, to the group, there is nothing less worthy of the commentary that Larry shared through Hiskuni that the Na'ar is not what Rashi is about to say it is, but another human being in the scene than the way Rashi is reading it of her seeing her seeing two things. So, so thank you. And I had not read that Hiskuni, so I appreciate that. Thank you, Larry. Um, Stewie, does Stewie have any thoughts on the matter? No, Stewie's going to be quiet. Barry. Uh, I'm deferring to uh, Barrett. has been waving her physical hand. And uh, Barrett, we'll have to show you later how to do the digital hand, but she's waving her f- physical hand. Thank you, Barry. On my screen, Barrett, I don't see you right now because I'm on speaker view, so I'm speaking, seeing the speaker and then six other random things. So somewhere on your screen, as Barry said, there's a way for you to raise a blue hand, and that way I'll know instantly that you're trying to talk. But go ahead. Yala. You have to unmute, though. Okay, now you're Thank unmuted. You Barry. Thank you, Barry, for helping me second time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, so I want to talk uh, briefly about Nar Boche. Okay. And two quick explanations, kind of different, uh, one from the other. So Nar, a young boy, is crying, though we are dealing with a baby. So we can say that at this moment, as he was crying so much, he was already became disabled because we know that Moshe was kvat pen kvat lashot. He had problem pronouncing words. So even his voice then was kind of hoarse and abnormal uh, cry, type of cry for a baby. So the word is, I mean, the idea is what is Denar doing if he's a baby, an infant, why is he crying so as an R? So one would say that it was abnormal, disabled, so we know, and, and I think I mentioned it the other time, that he was a Levite, and because of his difficulties and being disabled, he was never able to sing with the Leviim. Mm. which is something that we want to, to think. How come he's not singing with the Levine? Yes. And, 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 and the other thing is, 
that maybe it was a temporary thing. He was indeed crying so much for such a long time, and his voice was so hoarse that he was actually sound, not as a three months old or maybe as a five, six, seven years old. Yeah. So that's the two different things that you can say. Uh, wonderful. I remember um, some of you know that um, when Noah, our oldest, was born, she did almost nothing but scream for the first six months of her life. And at some point, Javi and I were like, is it really possible to cry that long and that loud and not injure your, your vocal cords? Or we thought that her forehead was going to burst into, into, into flames for how much she was crying. Um, this notion of, of, of a cry uh, louder and longer than one would, one would expect, right? So you just said a lot, Vera, but what I want to do is, is hold all of that. Had Elon read the next short two-word Rashi, but it's the shorter the Rashi, the more that's in it, right? That, that's a, a good thing to remember every once in a while, that when Rashi, um, w- when he distills something down to a two- or three-word comment, he is usually culling from a lot of midrashic material rather than the reverse. So let's read that. Uh, and I, Barry, are you still, do you want to say something in the previous comment? Do you want to, you're def- okay deferring for now? Okay. Uh, so let's go back to Elon. Uh, you got to unmute yourself again, Elon. And let's read this two word Rashi. Vihine nar boche kolo kinar. So what do those two words mean? And here, and here it is, uh, uh, a youth is crying. Uh, it's, the, it's the voice like a youth. Right. The two youths, right? So the first, <laughs> I knew you'd like that one. So <laughs> what, what, what Rashi is resolving so much in, a, in two words. First of all, he's saying, reader, I get it that you're confused that, that the word na'ar, as Vera pointed out, does not mean an infant. It means a young lad. It means like, uh, like Yosef when he was, um, shepherding with his brothers, the Hunna right? So I get that. Um, and I also, Rashi, Ra- Rashi might be, Rashi lives before Chizkuni, but he might be kind of pre critiquing Chizkuni, as it were, and saying, whatever this is, this is not another human being. Don't, don't, this is not Aaron, this is the baby. But, but what's missing is the k, the, the, the like, right? That whatever was coming out of the mouth of this baby, it was not our like. It was, it was youth-like, not baby-like, according to what, like what Barrett said. Now, going back to something that um, Rick had said before, uh, I want to share with you what the Gur Aryeh, who is the Maharal of Prague, who writes a super, inter- super commentary on Rashi, says about this. It's not on our page. I'll just read it to you. One second. I had it open. And of course, now I can't find it. Here. Um, It was only in that one human moment that his voice got loud. Don't think that, that this is a baby that just normally has a Na'ar's voice. In that moment, some super, in a moment that Rashi acknowledges is somewhat supernatural in the sense that, that the daughter of Pharaoh sees God present, there's another supernatural thing that happens. This infant's voice turns into a lad's voice. His voice got bigger, lehit gaber, in its cry. Why? Because this whole scene happened from God's hand. In order that she have mercy on him. 
this is a, a subtly different reading that suggests that she's a person who was open to the Shekhinah and that's what motivated her to have Chemla. This is, this is making her the object of the subject. God, you know, zetzed Moshe to cry like a Na'ar, to catch her attention more than a standard baby's cry would catch, catch the attention, so that she would have Chemla on it. And this we also found in the Midrash. Sorry, Rick, you're going to have to endure this. Shabbat Gavriel, that Gabriel came, Vehikahu, and smote him or smacked him, so that he um, uh, cry in a great, great cry. So Rashi, by saying two words, is referencing the fact that Na'ar is a strange word, suggesting that it's actually. Re- describing the baby and not a different human being, making oblique reference to this notion that God is present either directly or via the angel. And now we plug in what Vered says, Moshe is someone whose speech is interesting his entire life. He's kvad peh. He's heavy of, he's heavy of, heavy of mouth, right? Aaron, who may or may not be in the scene, is the one who could speak for him. So it's in the Midrash and the, and the presence of the word na'ar that you know, hints on a hint. It's a hint of a hint. That, that whatever stumblings he has as a speaker later on, even as a baby, he wasn't speaking as it were the way others speak. Right? So there's a, that, that's all kind of um, crafted in. It's like a, you know, a, a diamond is compressed carbon. All of that is compressed into kolo kana'ar. His voice was like a na'ar's. Larry, tell us why all of that is ridiculous. Not me, Diane. This is, this is oh, Diane. Sorry, <laughs> it's okay. So this is this is um, a mother's voice speaking. So Pharaoh's daughter looks at the baby, and and as she's contemplating what to do, she has a vision in her mind of of a nard who she's about to take home and raise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone, someone else mentioned already that, that this was her looking into the future. And I didn't, I didn't understand what that meant, but now, now I get that better. That she, she, she's like presciently hearing the call of this Na'ar. Right. Lovely. I'd never read it that way. Lovely. Um, yes, Rick, the, 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 the classic answer to the damage to the tongue happens when he's um, being tested in the, in, in the, um, in the palace by Pharaoh. Um, and the angel and the, and the angel does save. You don't you do not want to blame Moshe's speech impediment on the angel. You are the the angel's savior. You are the savior of the saviors. Uh, Marshall. Yeah, I also saw the Guru Aryeh uh, comment, which you just made reference to. Um, but I just wanted to go back to the the original source from Sota. Why there's a problem between the word Naar and Yeled. In Sota, it says, Kurile Yeled Vakurile Na'ar. He calls him a boy, and it calls him a Na'ar. Tana has been taught, Hu Yeled Vakolo Karna'ar. He is a boy, and his voice is as, as a Na'ar. So uh, when you think of a someone who's a Yeled, especially a Tinoch here, is very, very vulnerable. And Robert Alter makes reference to it where he says it might be relevant that Na'ar occurs elsewhere as a term of parental tenderness, referring, referring to a child who is vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, great. 
And, and it's amazing, how, you know, it's taken us obviously many weeks, if not months, um, uh, to get through this, but we're still on that two, two to three page stretch of Masechet Sota, which is a very, it's, it's, it's a rather odd occurrence in the Talmud, where you have several pages in a row that's basically just doing biblical midrash. You have that for a few pages in Masechet Megillah, um, somewhere between pages six and 10, I believe, of, of the tract of Megillah. You basically have the rap, it, the, the Talmud reads like a, a linear midrash on the verses of the Megillah. But most of the time, the Talmud does not read that way. You have this two to three page stretch, Masechet Sotai, where the rabbis are basically doing linear midrash on this story. And that's why every, nearly every footnote you see, at least in our book, takes you back. We started on, on Sota 10 and then Sota 11, and now we're, I think, on Sota 12. Sota 12, page, side two. Great. Any other comments on, on verse six? Joel, Bakasha. Is there any connection between the word not our youth and not our to shake? Hmm. Vered, what do you think? Linnaer and Naar, any association? We can't hear you yet. I just unmuted you. Based on uh, my humble idea, no. Huh. Is Leonard here today? Yeah, Leonard, do you anything if you find anything interesting in your book between those two roots. I, I, my instinct is to agree with Vera. These are just two roots with the same three letters, but I've been surprised before. All right. Pop, um, pipe up at Leonard if you've got, if you got something. Um, okay. Let's go to verse seven. Oh, but, oh, actually, Joel, let me ask you, why were you interested in that? Is there something behind that, that question? I was just wondering whether she- her looking at the child as a na'ar had any implications as to what her perception was. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously she didn't see, she didn't see it as a grown child. Maybe she's she, her looking at it was way describing it as a na'ar was sh- showing how she perceived the child. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. For those who don't know that verb, air means to shake something. So that's, that's the, that's the origin of, of the question. Okay. Um, Carol, do you want to read verse 7? Is the audio okay? Yep. Perfect. Vatomer achoto el bat paro ha'elech bekarati lach isha meneket min ha'iriot v'tenik and to be extremely precise, because it's a segolate noun, that turns into at a Okay? Okay. Um, um, and his sister said to the daughter of Pharaoh, um, <clears throat> shall I go and um, call for you a woman, a, a wet nurse, a woman who is nursing, <clears throat> excuse me, from among the, uh, the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew women, and, uh, she will nurse, uh, nurse the child for you. 
Good, right? Like that 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 lach is a, is a, is is hard to make sense of, right? And so you're you instinctively translate it as she, she will nurse the child because the child is the direct object, but there's an indirect object on your behalf, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And for those of you who know the word tinok, meaning baby, here you're you're getting the etymology of tinok. The reason why tinok is a baby is because the verb linok is to nurse or to suckle, and it can be in the pa'al or the hefil. It can be to to take the milk and to offer the milk, right? Um, so excellent rendering of the verse um just to focus uh, as as i teach a little bit of grammar here as we go that word ha'elech which you translated so nicely shall i go so also some of you may not be aware that in biblical hebrew much more so in modern hebrew adding a hey patach at the beginning of a verb aha in which normally means the it's basically it, it's an interrogative it, it turns a verb it, it turns a declarative verb into an interrogative so elech i will go Ha'elech, shall I go? Would you like me to go? Uh, you might see that in modern poetry, but you would never hear an Israeli speaking that, right? Um, so shall I go? And then immediately after that is avav ha'ipuch, a verb that looks in the past tense, but actually future tense. Shall I go? And I will call for you a, a nursing woman from the Hebrews, and she will give nurse on your behalf, maybe in your name, um, to the to the child. Um Marshall, can I read out loud what you wrote to me privately? I assume, assume I can, although I can't see your face. Uh, Marshall writes, in the BDB dictionary, the Brown Drivers Brig Biblical Dictionary, the three-letter root nun, ayin resh, na'ar, in late Hebrew, can mean to growl, to cry, to bray, and to make a noise. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I wonder if that actually comes, that, that meaning comes from, from our verse. Okay, Leonard, Bavakasha. Okay, so according to my dictionary, there are three different nars. Okay. One meaning to shake or shake off, and one meaning to bray or roar, and the other one, the root of the nar, the youth. Uh-huh. Um, and they say here that some people connect the youth with the first one, and some people connect it with the second one, and some people don't connect it at all. So you have your choice here. But they do make comparison to a German word that I don't know, werfen, which means to throw in the sense to bring forth, but it also means young. So I don't know what to tell you, except that it looks like it's three different words. Uh, great. Th- great. Thank you for doing the research. Um, uh, uh, Cheer to, to Scott for bringing up that modern poetry, a poet by, uh, poem by Rachel, a beautiful song. Hatishma koli, do you hear, will she hear my voice, or will you hear my voice? Right, so... You do see that in poetry, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it so much in prose. Yes, and ois, in, in Yiddish, oiskevorfen would be like to be, to be thrown out. That was my way of, when I was told that something that I had wanted to eat in the refrigerator was already been thrown out, my mother would tell me that it was oiskevorfen. So vorfen also, that means that in Yiddish. Um, okay, uh, let's, let's throw our questions at the verse. Carol has translated beautifully. Uh, problems... Uh, things that you would want to investigate, things that you imagine Rashi might investigate, put them out as questions rather than answers, right? What, what, are, what are some things that are prickly in the verse? And again, I can only see a few of the screens, so raise your digital hand if you can. I'll try to scroll back and forth to see if someone is shaking their hand vigorously. What would you ask on this verse? Any problems that present themselves? Steve and then Tova. Yeah, I just, I noticed, you know, from the previous verse when we, we've been 
going around about, you know, this, this, um, the presence of God in this baby. And I just think it's interesting that we just immediately jump to that, you know, is, is she's going to keep the baby? Like there is no discussion between her and her, the girls that she's out walking around with. And, you know, and the one thing that I kind of love about it is, it's like, you know, even with all of that, the sister has to jump out and say, oh, I can help you with this. Yeah. Right. As if there was some, maybe there is a question. I don't know, but I just love the fact that it just jumps right to the fact that, that she's keeping the baby. No questions asked. That's, that's a great comment, Steve. It's as if the Torah, once the Torah says, Allah, that she's going to have mercy on him, that, that determines the action. Once you, once you, have, once you have mercy, how, how can it not be that she takes care of him? But right, the Torah never says that she says, I think I'll raise him, right? Um, so you, you can we, we move that in two directions. You could say, was, was Miriam's quick offer to help nurse the child a... Uh, you know, a um, helping submit seal the deal that she was going to take care of it, or was it already clear in the encounter that the daughter of Pharaoh was going to take care and raise the child, and now Miriam's just offering other other assistance? But but it's but it's it's happening, but it doesn't tell us it's happening. And it's a wonderful pickup. Uh, Tova, Barry, Larry, Diane. Um, yeah, it kind of follows on um, the suddenness with which Miriam appears. I mean, we know, we know she's been there, but up until this point, of course, Pharaoh's daughter has not been aware. And yet there's no reaction, you know, no, no hint of a surprise. She's there and Pharaoh's daughter takes it as natural and immediately takes the offer. Uh, I just find that interesting. And I have to say, looking ahead a little bit, I'm a little bit bothered by because the suggestion is going to be she will take the, take the child and nurse it for you in her own home. In other words, Yochevet's not coming into the, par- the palace. She's taking the child back, which is typical. Usually when uh, children are given to wet nurses, it is in the home of the wet nurse. But the logic bothers me because they've had to put the child in the Teva because they could no longer conceal it. Yet now you'll have, it's going to be back among her own people, nursing a child. Right. Does that imply that now she has the protection, the open protection of the princess? Right. So yeah, right. I have a few, a few issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, once you really start trying to stage this and, and not only stage it like you're doing a movie, but, but try to imagine it happening as it is, as explained, you know, some of the pieces fall away. Um, but, um, but yes, that, 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 that's, that's a very, very apt comment. Uh, Barry, Larry, Diane, Barbara, Judy, Rebecca, Larry. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Barrett has her hand up again. Also um, the staging. Yeah. Uh, previously, um, uh, Miriam was off standing on the riverbank, uh, apart from where Pharaoh's daughter is. Pharaoh's daughter is kind of talking to herself here in a private moment uh, about the baby. Now suddenly Miriam's right there. Uh, so there's something uh, being pushed. That the staging is being pushed. Right. Right. Did she did she jump out from the reeds? Was she close the entire time? Um, and it goes back to Steve's comment before about about. 
the 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 to the the story as told in the verses is clearly not telling us everything, right? There are many things that happened that transpired, and we're just getting like the tips of the the tips of the mountains, right? Like the you know like a a little a little atoll above the water. There's there's a whole underground mountain that we're only seeing the tip of, right? Um, so how she got to that exact spot, um, what uh, what happened such that. The daughter of Pharaoh decided she was going to keep this baby such that Miriam thought it would be a safe thing to offer it. Wonderful. Uh, let's do Larry, Diane, and we'll go to Vered, and then we'll see the, the other hands that are up. So um, the question, you asked for questions. So the question is, what, what was the intent of, of, of his sister at this point? So I contend, or I, I propose, that the Pharaoh's daughter hadn't yet revealed what she was going to do. But she does say out loud, this must be a Hebrew child. So we don't know yet, she's, is she going to adopt the child? Is she, going to, is, she going to, is she going to drown the child? We know that she took pity, but we don't. We know that because she thought that, but she didn't say that. So, um, so Moses' sister doesn't yet know what Pharaoh's, what Pharaoh's da- uh, daughter is going to do except she knows that she's identified as a Hebrew. So to rescue the child, she jumps forward and she does two things. Hmm. Number one, she says, she, she says, should I get a Hebrew nurse? Should I get a Hebrew woman to nurse it? Because, of course, it wouldn't be nursed by, by a, an Egyptian, right? She's proposing to save the child. But number two, she says at the end, the uh, to nurse for you. So she's putting in Pharaoh's daughter's mind the idea that she can actually adopt this child. Yeah. We don't yet know that this is what her intent is. So yeah. she steers in the direction both of saving the child and of adopting the child. Great. And again, going back to Steve's comment, trying to figure out who's pulling the levers here of decision-making, right? Is Miriam responding to what's apparent in the scene that the that this chemla, this mercy that the daughter of Pharaoh has experienced, has meant that she's already made the decision to raise it, or is Miriam's intervention helping to push that along in some in some strategic way? Great. So, um, well, yeah. so the so the other thing we have to think about is what is in um, Pharaoh's daughter's mind when this Hebrew child jumps out from the reeds. She has to be wondering. Is this? Is there some connection between this child and this young girl on the bank? And and who? How is it that she knows a Hebrew wet nurse? Um, it's it's sort of um, too neat a package. Yeah. Um, correct. Uh, and and that's yet another piece that the story doesn't doesn't tell us. We know we know nothing about the daughter of Pharaoh's internal wondering. The only thing we know about the daughter of Pharaoh is this her reaction of chemla, and then the her response to Miriam's offer in two verses from now. And then I think it was Tova who said that we we can imagine that the baby's going to be nursed in Yocheved's home, and that's exactly what we're going to learn in verse uh, ten, where it says that after the boy grew up, the boy was brought to the daughter of Pharaoh, suggesting that the the daughter of Pharaoh had nothing to do with this, right? So. Um, we we, we we can wonder about whether or not the daughter of Pharaoh wondered, is, is, is there something suspicious here? Was this set up? Right? Am I being punked? Um, okay, Vered. 
Vered. Okay, now we hear you. Okay, sorry. It's okay. Okay, I uh, would like to connect it to the previous Pasuk where it says Nar Boche. So uh, Miriam was sitting there behind the bushes and listening that he's crying and crying. And maybe I'm adding, saw that he, the baby, was given already to some Egyptian woman to breastfeed him, but he's still crying. Mm. He's still crying and he's not satisfied. So then she, Miriam, is going to Bat Parol and she said to her, um, you know, as if I'm adding some words, he's still crying. He's not fed enough. Shall I go and get someone from the Ivriot? It has to be Ivriot. It says, Mina Ivrit, Betinik Lach et Ayelet. So that was her offer, not just come and saying, okay, give the baby to Ivrit, but after giving the baby to some Egyptian woman, Maybe this is a better solution for the boy not to cry. Wonderful. Rashi is going to go in that direction, whether we get to it today or next week. Rashi also wants to explain how it, why the offer from Miriam was, was right away for this child to be nursed by a Hebrew uh, wet nurse. Great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Barbara and then Judy. Okay, we hear you, Barbara. <laughs> um, I think that there's a lot that that the sister Miriam had a lot of gall talking to a princess. I mean, I'm in shock that she would have had that courage to talk to the princess. Hmm. And it just is amazing to me that she that the princess would listen to her and say, "Oh yeah, yeah," and talk to her like a regular person. Right. That's kind of shocking to me. As if it's just a normal interaction. And I think that the rabbis are sensitive to that and trying to see places where there is, where there, there's God's hand in this, right? Because it's a totally abnormal encounter, right? Right. A Miriam is a slave. Correct. Correct. When does a slave talk to the princess? Alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, Judy Tova Norm. So, Barbara, I was wondering exactly the same thing, that, wow, isn't this chutzpahdik? And what is it that's propelling Miriam to make this bold statement? But then I am thinking about how is this possibly an opening for us to look at Miriam's journey in her life, that she possesses this character trait and is it possibly a foreshadowing of other places in her life where she will be stepping forward? So I'm wondering about Miriam now. Great. Tova, Norm, Rebecca Leonard. Um, yeah, just a, a note from an Egyptian cultural perspective. Uh, we might think of a wet nurse as somebody who's sort of a, a menial person, but actually, especially in, in Egyptian culture with regard to the royal family, wet nurses were very highly exalted. They were usually noble women. They were usually honored or often honored with tombs adjacent to the Valley of the Kings because they were really seen as second mothers wow. to these children. And so 
I mean, who knows how much of the actual context has survived in the story, but it's, it's fascinating that the princess would so readily bring into this child's life that she seemingly has decided to bring up an honored second mother who's a Hebrew, or maybe even very deliberately wants that to be part of it. But it, again, reflects on her perception of other human beings and, and, and seeing this as something she would want this child to have and honoring you'll have it in that way. Yeah, and not only a second mother, obviously the actual mother, although the, the actual mother, yeah, that, exactly. But the way that the Torah is going to explain it, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. the, the the daughter of Pharaoh is going to have no connection with this child for quite a long time. This is the right. and I guess we could also ask another question on that, which is that: Does it have to be that by the daughter of Pharaoh allowing Miriam to take the baby to nurse the child? that the daughter of Pharaoh has already made the decision that she's adopting this child or whatever the, the word is, mm-hmm. right? We, uh, you know, Steve was asking before, you know, how did it move so quickly that she had this emotional reaction and then she decides to save it? Well, we know because it turns out later that the baby comes back to the daughter of Pharaoh and Moshe goes up to the palace. But in this scene, right, the, the, the bare notes of the scene is that she has mercy. She knows it's a Hebrew child. And she agrees to allow a Hebrew wet nurse nurse the nurse the baby, but we, we don't have anything that says declaratively she's going to raise this child as her own. Right? We just mm-hmm. know that from context context later on, um, and maybe maybe we'll 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 pull out of that when we get there. What um, what, what transpired or how it came to be that she came to that decision that she's going to actually have this be one of her own children or her child? Norm, Rebecca, Leonard, and then we probably will. Um, have to wait for next week for the Rashi. We know already from Midrash, at least, that Miriam um, is not afraid to speak her mind to people with power over her. She can be sort of a risky person to put in charge of watching over the baby. I think this ends up being an additional reason to believe that her parents would have made sure to send Aaron along. (laughs) Um, So that's another reason to believe that Aaron was probably there with her um, so that he could perhaps smooth things over should that be necessary. Um, and I just think it's another reason to believe that Aaron was present. Great. And so you're, you're, you're inviting Midrash to speak to Midrash, which is wonderful. It's wonderful even if the Midrashim did not know of one another, because it's not clear to us that Midrashim written by different rabbis across generations were, were all apparent to one another. But Norma's referencing the Midrash that we read, I don't know, some weeks ago that has um, uh, Miriam... Uh, speaking rather brazenly to her father, saying, how dare you separate from our mother and therefore have a, a more severe decree on Israelite future than Pharaoh's, because you're preventing not only boys from being born, but girls as well. So Mir- so, so that Midrash is from a different collection than, 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 than some of the stuff that we're speaking about. But we do have a Midrashic notion of Miriam being willing to go right up to the person of authority and saying something that might, someone else might not say. Rebecca Leonard, and that might bring us home. Okay, so in regards to the question that both Judy and uh, uh, Barbara brought up, Malbim apparently had exactly the same question. And, uh, whoops, and he says here in translation, due to the Hashem's protection of Moshe, his sister found the courage to speak before Pharaoh's daughter and was not afraid of punishment. In addition, due to his, God's protection, her, uh, her advice to bring a Hebrew wet nurse was also accepted. 
Had he been given over to an Egyptian wet nurse, he would have conceivably he would have been conceivably murdered in secret because the Egyptians hated the Hebrews. Yeah, the Malbim was a 19th century Ukrainian uh, rabbi. Rabbi, I think Malbim stands for Mayor Labish Ben Yechiel Mikhail. His last name was Wisser, and he's a uh, uh, he's not he's, he's not getting he's too late to be included on a standard mikroch delot, but as a, a wonderful um, and intuitive commentator on the Torah, which I. Uh, maybe we'll we'll get to the Malbim at some point. Um, let's see, it's 9.30. Let, let's have Carol really in 30 seconds just read the Rashi and we can think on it and we'll pick up and, and look at it more closely last next time. I think Carol, All right, 30 you, seconds, I feel pressured here. Min ha'ivriyot melamed shehezirato All right. El mitriyot harbeh Okay. Can you give a shot at trying to translate that? Um, it teaches that I'm thinking Hechazirato has returned him. So in biblical, in Midrashic Hebrew, um, Lehachzir or Lehachzir could also mean to bring someone around. The Agabai okay. Tzedakah uh, would be Mechazer al Hadalatod, go around from door to door, um, like, like almost like in a circuit. That's why it's Chazar. Okay. Okay. So, so um, that she uh, she brought him around to Egyptians, uh, man, many Egyptians, to nurse, and he didn't nurse. Right. Um, uh, be, uh, because it, it was in the future that he would be. Speaking with Shekhinah. Right. So the first part of this thing that Rashi brings brings to mind what Vered said before, that somehow this baby was not able to be mollified or, or nursed or, or fed properly from the Egyptian midwives, which we can imagine, uh, nur- uh, wet nurses, which you can imagine would be Pharaoh's daughter's initial instinct, right? The second part is, a, is, is, not, is not a fun thing to read through. The suggestion is the reason why is that this f- mouth of the future savior of the Jewish people would not be able to gain any kind of joy or should not have any kind of physical contact from, from, uh, from a, from a heathen breast. Right. So that part of it is, is, is less comfortable to read through. Um, the first part of it will, maybe we'll end here also goes back to something that um, uh, Steve hinted at before in terms of how much time has transpired. Right. It suggests that, Miriam's appearance right away at that scene is not right away at that scene, but she does take the baby. She does make the decision to raise it. She does try to get um, any one of the wet nurses around the palace to take care of it. It doesn't happen. And then Miriam, maybe watching the whole time, says, here's my chance. Here's my, here's my chance to intervene. Right? So we'll let that stand and we'll look closer at it le- uh, next week. Larry and Dan, did you want to offer one last comment? I see your hand up. I actually have a question that's from Marshall and you and anyone else who knows. So Marshall mentioned the, and you mentioned the Gurarie, which I think was the Maral of Maral, Maral right? Prague, yeah. And I'm just wondering where you, where you find that. It's not in our, it's not in our book and I don't see it easily in Sepharia. So right. if I want to look at this commentary or super commentary, where do I find that? Several places. There is a, um, There's a two-volume set usually sold by the name the Mizrahi, which is a collection of four commentators 
on Rashi, including a commentary called the Mizrahi, but and it's called the 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 set is called the Mizrahi, but one of the four commentators is the Gur Aryeh. I also have a volume of uh, Chumash called Pshuto Shel Mikra and Rashi Kipshuto, which is a different set than the Lifshuto uh, Shel Rashi. And this set, in addition to having a really wonderful um, Hebrew explication of what Rashi is saying, um, brings in, not on every single line, but about 10 to 15 different super commentaries on Rashi to help explicate what it's saying. So this is another set that people may want to have, uh, take a look at, Lipshuto Shel Mikra, and it's, the publisher is, it's hard for me to say what the publisher is. Um, but, um, but it's called Pshuto Shel Mikra. Perhaps you could just make a, um, a scan of the title page and send that to Absolutely. us. Um, and, uh, Marshall, do you want to answer where you come across the Guraye? You know, my source is the Lishuto Shel Rashi by Shmuel Goldbard. And oftentimes you'll bring in additional commentaries or explanations on the text, and point out the problem that Rashi is trying to pro- uh, deal with. Can you also copy the title page and send it? Got it. Thank you. Have a good Wednesday, everybody. Call to be healthy, be, be happy. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.